0: Stig Larsson, Joh Nesper, and Henning Mankel, three well known Nordic noir authors whose books have sold in their hundreds of millions and which have also made the leap from the bookstore shelves to box office movie trilogies and award winning TV series. Nordic noir, which is also commonly known as Scandinavian noir, is a genre of crime fiction which is often written from a police point of view set in a Scandinavian or Nordic country. These novels generally involve the most brutal of crimes, committed in bleak urban surroundings or remote sleepy villages, in which the main characters are tortured protagonists with mysterious and painful pasts. In August of 2016, police in Sweden were called to a summer house in the city of Arboga in the county of Westmanland. Little would they know that this would be the beginning of one of the most spectacular, stranger-than-fiction criminal cases in modern times, a real-life Nordic noir thriller containing bribery, threats, forgery, manipulation and, of course, murder. This is Nordic True Crime. Ärboga is a town which is home to around 13,800 inhabitants. It is located to the west of the Mälardalen region of Sweden, a mere 30 minutes or so from the larger neighboring cities of Örebro, Västerås, and Eskilstuna. The town is known for its rich cultural heritage, many listed buildings, and beautiful surrounding lakes and countryside. On the 2nd of August 2016, shortly after 11pm, Sweden's emergency services received a call from a woman in a state of distress. She told the operator, through periods of coughing and sputtering, that she was covered in blood from head to toe, with injuries all over her body. She also said that she thought that she was dying, and that she believed that her husband was dead. She was not exactly sure of what had happened to them, but thought that someone must have been in the bedroom of their summer house and attacked them whilst they slept. The police rushed to the red summer house on the outskirts of Arboga, and on arrival, shortly before reaching the property, they could already see the bloody figure of a woman standing by the window waiting on them. The scene was exactly as the woman had described. She had suffered horrific injuries and her husband lay dead in the couple's double bed. The woman's name was Anki Muller and her now deceased husband was Joran Muller. Later during her recovery, Anki would go on to describe what happened on that terrifying summer evening. Quote, I was awoken by what I thought was someone elbowing me. I got myself up onto my knees and it was then that I saw someone standing there. I asked him what he was doing, but he didn't answer. Then suddenly he was on top of me and I put my arms over my head to try and protect myself. It was then that something happened to me and I lost consciousness. In these situations... When a person has been found dead and their spouse is still alive, albeit seriously injured. It is not unusual for the police to initially suspect the surviving partner to be the one that carried out the attack, as it often is the case. There was possibly a fight between the couple and one of them accidentally ended up dead as a result of the scuffle. Or maybe she had attacked her husband with the intention of killing him and her wounds were self-inflicted in order to try and prove that she had acted in self-defense. The police were not throwing all their eggs into one basket, but they did believe that it was very possible that Anki had something to do with her husband's death. But then she made a remark which immediately caught the attention of the authorities. When receiving treatment in the ambulance, they asked her... If she had any enemies or if there was anyone at all who she could think of who would have wanted to cause her harm. She then told the police that she had had a small disagreement with her daughter who worked with young people seeking asylum in Sweden. It could have been one of them who attacked them. The immigration crisis, which is often referred to as the refugee crisis, is a period at the beginning of 2015 when an unprecedented number of people started arriving in the European Union via the Mediterranean Sea or through Southeastern Europe. In the first year alone of the mass migration, around 162,000 people moved to Sweden. And this was when the then 41-year-old Johanna Müller, daughter of Anki and Jöran Müller, started her own company with the aim of helping unaccompanied children seeking refuge in the country. When Anki awoke in hospital, suffering from what have been life-threatening injuries, she began to talk and elaborate on what she had said in the ambulance at the scene of the crime. And it wasn't long before any suspicions the police had in regards to her murdering her husband slowly disappeared. It was now two weeks since the murder and attempted murder, and the police were ready to make an arrest. It was Anki's daughter, Johanna Möller, and her 18-year-old boyfriend, Mohamed Royabi, who was originally from Afghanistan. Mohamed had previously lived at the accommodation for asylum seekers ran by Johanna, but since becoming a couple, he had recently moved into her apartment to live with her and her children. The couple were stopped and arrested whilst driving different cars in the vicinity of Arlanda Airport in Sweden's capital city, Stockholm. They were on their way to Thailand, a very popular holiday destination for Swedes but what wasn't known for certain is whether or not they were fleeing the country or just going on a holiday together. Even if it was just a short break, it was seen as perhaps a bit strange for them to be going on holiday just two weeks after the murder and attempted murder of her parents, especially when no arrests had been made. This was not the first time Johanna had had dealings with the police, She had previously been forced to close a property she was using for children seeking refuge because she didn't have the required permission to run an establishment of this nature. However, that was a small oversight in comparison to allegation which had been made against her. Two male teenagers who had also lived at Johanna's asylum accommodation had claimed that they had had sex with her. They said that she had threatened them that if they did not agree to have sex, then she would have them deported back to where they had come from. This was a serious allegation, which Johanna of course denied. And as it was essentially their word against hers and an insinuation without any real evidence, the allegations went no further and the police were forced into closing the case. The police had their prime suspects in custody, but much like the allegations made by the young men, there was no evidence tying them to the attack on Johanna's parents. So they were both released, just three days after their initial arrest. The police were certain that they were in some way involved in the attack on the elderly couple, but they were soon alerted to something else in Johanna's past something quite unbelievable. Roughly one year previous to the murder of her father and attempted murder of her mother, Johanna was at the same summer house with her then-husband and children, and just as her mother did in 2016, she too made a call to the emergency services. She told the operator that she wanted to report her husband as missing. She claimed that he had gone out onto the lake on a fishing trip the previous evening and had failed to return. He had apparently gone out to set up some nets, but when she awoke the next morning, he wasn't there. She went down to the side of the lake and found his boat floating towards the beach. But he was nowhere to be seen. During the phone call with the emergency services, Johanna was asked several questions in regards to her husband's possible whereabouts and physical condition. Could he have been at a friend's house? Was he wearing a life vest? Was he a physically fit man? Each time, she answered with a simple and straightforward and somewhat cold, yes or no. The fire brigade had initially searched the area where her husband was suspected of going missing from but were unable to locate him. It wasn't until late the same evening that he was found lying on his back under the water just a few meters from the beach, the same beach which belonged to the summer house owned by Johanna's parents. It was perhaps slightly strange that he was found so close to land, his boat, and even a pier, but it was even stranger that he was found dead in relatively shallow water, water which was only one meter deep. Despite these circumstances, the death was ruled as an accidental drowning. Just four days later, The Swedish insurance company, IF, received a phone call from Johanna. The call was made in regards to a claim on her husband's life insurance policy. Alarm bells began to ring for the agent who took the call. These types of red flags are something which insurance companies are well aware of and to make a claim just four days after the death of her husband was certainly something which needed a closer looking at. On further inspection, it was noted that the life insurance policy for both Johanna and her husband was taken out just six months or so before his death. And there was also something else worth noting. The premium for Johanna Müller's insurance was never paid, whereas her husband's was. Meaning, of course, that it was his life insurance which was the only remaining valid policy. The findings were passed on to the police. IF were of course suspicious about the claim, as they are generally not made so quickly after the death of a spouse or family member, and as they were aware of the mysterious circumstances surrounding the death of their client, they believed that they had the right to question the claim. However, the police had of course deemed the death to be accidental, and IF now knew that they were not going to simply reinvestigate the case based on the insurance claim. So IF decided that they would do what they believed was right regardless of the authorities' decisions. They called Johanna Muller to inform her that they would not be paying out on the life insurance policy. And it didn't take long before the police had a change of heart. The accidental drowning of her husband was now being looked into. Two possible murder investigations with the same prime suspect were about to run parallel to each other. The police decided that they needed to get closer to Johanna and Mohammed to see if they would reveal any information which could tie them to the attack at the summer house. So they began by bugging the couple's car and the hotel room, which they were due to check into. One of the discussions recorded in the vehicle was made when the couple was traveling to Norway to stay at the hotel. This is what Johanna said to Mohammed: quote, They have maybe attached a tracker to our car. I'm not joking. I'm serious. I don't want to be charged with murder or accessory to murder. Do you understand? From the evidence gathered, including that of the recordings from the bugging of the car and hotel room, it wasn't long before the couple was back in custody, just 11 days after initially being released. Whilst under arrest, it came to light that they had been trying to send each other secret messages and as a result of this, Johanna was subsequently moved to another prison. The authorities were not taking any chances. On the 25th of October 2016, prosecutors requested permission to exhume the grave of Johanna's husband. The request was simple. They wanted to carry out another autopsy in order to establish if they could determine if the cause of death could have been due to foul play. Jessica Venna, one of the prosecutors in the case, said in an interview with Swedish newspaper Aftonbladet, We believe that a forensic examination is of vital importance to the investigation. In regards to this, we have consulted forensic experts. However, not everyone believed that in doing so, they would achieve the results which they wanted. Peter Kranz, a forensic physician, was skeptical of the prosecution's request. He said, Realistically, the decomposition of the body has progressed significantly and this process will have been affected by several factors such as the nature of the earth, moisture and so on. 2016 came and went. The police were now pretty much certain that both Johanna and Mohammed were responsible for what happened that evening at the red summer house, and their suspicions were soon confirmed when Mohammed made a confession. In February of 2017, he admitted that it was him and him alone who attacked Anki and her husband Yaran with a knife whilst they slept in their bedroom. However, he claimed that he did it under the pressure of Johanna. She had made him do it. When Johanna was asked for her side of the story, she denied any involvement in the crime, just as she had done when first arrested. At the first official hearing, Mohammed explained to the police exactly what had happened. He stated that Johanna had picked him up in her car in Eskilstuna, Around 40 minutes' drive from Arboga, he then said that she didn't tell him where they were headed, but it soon became clear that they were on their way to Arboga. During the journey, he had noticed that Johanna had a bag with her in the car, and it was in this bag where the knife and a pair of gloves lay. A short distance from her parents' summer house, Johanna stopped the car. She handed a knife to Mohammed and told him that he was going to kill her parents. He told the police that he had said to her several times that he just wouldn't do what she was asking of him. But after constant pressure, and allegedly under the influence of drugs and alcohol, he told her that he would do it. He took the knife from Johanna and got out of the car. On arrival at the house, he noticed but the lights were still on. He decided to hide until the property was in complete darkness, and it was then that he felt that it was safe to approach without being seen. Mohammed sneaked up to the second floor of the house and waited outside the bedroom door for roughly 30 minutes until it was completely quiet, hoping that the couple were now asleep. He said, that he then opened the door to the bedroom and walked towards Johanna's father. He began to violently stab him in the chest as he slept. Mohammed said that he soon left the house and returned to the car where, according to him, Johanna was almost asleep. They drove away from the red summer house and he threw the murder weapon from the moving car over the side of a bridge. In April of 2017, both Johanna Möller and Mohammed Royabi were officially charged with the murder of Göran, and attempted murder of Anki. As he had admitted to the charges and she was still denying them, it was no surprise that they had parted ways whilst in custody. The main charges against Johanna were murder of her father, attempted murder of her mother and attempted murder and conspiracy to murder in regards to the death of her husband. Her other charges included serious fraud and forgery in relation to the life insurance claim. Furthermore, she had even been charged with threatening behaviour due to comments she had made to a police officer during the hearing. It was a very much unexpected threat he was carried out in front of the court cameras, she said, quote, Those who get in my way or do me harm will end up in a wheelchair. Despite the charges mounting against her, she continued to deny everything, claiming that she was completely innocent of all she was being accused of. Mohammed Ruyabi was charged with the murder of Yoran and the attempted murder of Anki. He, like before, admitted to the charges and insisted that it was Johanna who forced him into committing his crimes. However, there was one discrepancy. Mohammed's age. When moving to Sweden from Afghanistan, he had stated to the migration offices that he was born in 1998, but it was also claimed that he was actually born in 1994. It was vital to establish his actual age as it could go on to affect his future sentencing, as in Sweden there is a so-called penalty discount law, which is often referred to as a youth discount law. In practice, perpetrators under the age of 21 at the time of an offence are entitled to receive a more lenient sentence. It would mean that if he was under the age of 21 when the attack was carried out, then he could possibly receive a reduction in his sentence of up to 25%. The trial began on the 18th of May and media interest was at an all-time high. It was the most talked about criminal case in Sweden for some time. It was of course a very special case as Johanna had been charged with two different crimes a year or so apart. It was effectively two different trials taking place at the same time. The death of her husband was the first of the alleged crimes to take center stage and his family was present in the courtroom. In order to establish grounds for the murder, it was apparent from the beginning of the trial that the prosecutors, we're going to argue that the murder of her husband was carried out for financially motivated reasons. They began by looking at the large sums of money which had been transferred from her several accounts and it was very clear that there was a lot more money going out than coming in. It was also noted that she had even borrowed money from her father in the past. Was she that desperate for more cash... That she would kill her husband and parents. In her defense, Johanna claimed that she had been scared of her then-husband, that he had acted in a threatening manner towards her, which was backed up by her family members who had stated that they had witnessed this same behavior. She also said that he was an addict, a hard drinker and drug user. She claimed that she had on several occasions called family members in a state of fear and worry in regards to her own safety and that of her kids. But when her family was ready to rush to her aid, she would call back and advise them that everything had calmed down. There was no need to come and help her from a man who she had sworn had threatened to murder her. This, of course, was the exact opposite of how his family had described him. A nice, friendly man, a great father, a man who had time for everyone. In fact, they would even state that it was he who was scared of Johanna, not the other way around. They had even revealed that he had told them that she had threatened to hang him from a tree. Was Johanna over time building a false picture of her husband? in order to murder him and claim that she acted in self-defense. But did the opportunity to stage a fake drowning arise and seem more like something she could get away with? Many theories have been discussed but as she had always denied murdering him then it was unlikely that the real truth would ever surface. That was unless the second autopsy could uncover new evidence. And that is exactly what happened to a degree. The focus was on what was found in his lungs. The autopsy revealed that the lungs contained a certain amount of algae. This, the prosecution claimed, was not consistent with the amount found in the lake. In conclusion, the husband must have been murdered elsewhere before being dumped in the water. However, Johanna's defense team stated that when her husband was first found, no test of the water was taken, which meant that there was a possibility that the area of the lake could have contained that level of algae. This new information, coupled with Johanna's conflicting version of events, seemed to have given more credit to the allegation of murder. And then suddenly... There was a new revelation. During the hearing, Johanna's own kids stated that their mother had even tried to convince them to murder their own father. The next stage of the trial was about to begin. The murder and attempted murder of Johanna's father and mother, the incident that sparked the lengthy and complicated investigation, was about to see its stay in court. Muhammad's lawyer began the defense of his client by stating that he had absolutely no motive to carry out the crime, there was simply nothing in it to benefit him. He was 100% influenced and coerced by Johanna. Muhammad himself stated that both he and Johanna had met on several occasions to discuss the murder and that she made it clear each time that both of her parents should be killed. The trial soon became too much for Muhammad to handle and he broke down, resulting in a break in proceedings. It was now the turn of Johanna. She had already given conflicting versions of events the night her husband disappeared in regards to seeing the boat and then not seeing the boat. And she had once again given inconsistent statements in regards to her whereabouts the night of the attack on her mother and father, three different versions to be exact. Firstly, she claimed that she was at home when the murder took place. Then she said that she was at a supermarket And thirdly, bizarrely, she stated that she had been out selling sex. In court, she explained why she had made three different statements in regards to where she was at the time of the attack. She said, I have told different versions and taken a little bit from one story and a little bit from another. In the end, I believe in them myself. All previous versions are lies and inventions that depend on my mental state. I was manic and psychotic. The long, drawn-out trial was over. The verdict was in. The court stated that there was enough evidence and motive to find both Johanna Müller and Mohamed Ruyabi guilty of the murder and attempted murder of her parents, Joran and Anki. Johanna Müller received a life sentence for her part in the crime and Mohamed Royabi received 14 years in prison. He was also ordered to leave Sweden indefinitely on completion of his sentence and he will never be allowed to return to the country. The court also stated that Johanna's actions, coupled with the evidence gathered in regards to the suspected murder of her husband, displayed enough of a motive to kill him or have him killed. In addition to her life sentence for masterminding the murder and attempted murder of her parents, she was also charged with conspiracy to murder relating to attempting to persuade her kids to carry out the murder of their father, fraud, forgery, threatening behaviour and bribery in relation to having tried to bribe a forensic officer to post a letter for her without it being examined. However, after appealing, the murder charge for the death of her husband was rejected and laterally reversed. The high court stated that there was not enough evidence for the charge to stand, which also meant that the charge of fraud was subsequently reversed and she would no longer have to pay damages to her ex-husband's family. Despite this, the sentences of life for Johanna Muller in 14 years for mohammed riyabi would stand bringing an end to an exhausting and spectacular case which still holds many unanswered questions in september of 2018 johanna's mother anki who no longer has any contact with her daughter, broke her silence and said the following in an interview with Swedish newspaper Aftonbladet, I've thought about going to visit her in prison just one time before I die. I want an explanation. I want her to tell me everything about the day she decided to try and kill us. But I don't think I will get my answer. Psychopaths never admit to anything. They say that time heals all wounds, but the wounds are still there and will always exist. I take my clothes off, then I see what happened to me. But when I get up in the morning and try to eat, then I am reminded of what has happened. I go to rehabilitation for my injuries, and I will do so for the rest of my life. I had two wonderful children, but I don't have that today, now I only have one left. I'm here to tell you about LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast brought to you by me, Dr. Shiloh, and this guy. Hi, I'm her bestie and co-host, Dr. Scott. She was a cop and I was a Hollywood casting director. Now we're both forensic psychologists working in Los Angeles. We met while doing our internships working with sex offenders. I know, right? Twice a month, we bring you a classic or contemporary true crime story while applying real psychological concepts and dishing about entertainment's representations of those crimes. Subscribe now to LA. Not so. Confidential, wherever you get your podcasts. True crime, psychology, and snark. Trust us. We're doctors.